right. So I have a question for my students. How many of your parents have ever told you, if you live under my house, you're gonna follow my rules? Good. Most of your parents probably had that told to them as well. A number of years ago, uh, there was a, a story in the news. There was an 18-year-old girl, and she decided she was going to sue her parents. Her parents told her, you must do your chores, you must respect your curfew, and they told her she could not see the boy that had been a bad influence on her. She decided that this was unreasonable. Her parents had no right to make these kinds of rules, but her parents told her, if you don't like the rules, you're 18, you are welcome to leave. And so that's exactly what she did. She moved in with a family friend. But the daughter was very upset when she realized that her parents were no longer paying for her private school tuition. They were no longer letting her drive the car that she was using. And they had informed her they would no longer be paying for her college tuition the following year. So in response, this daughter attempted to sue her parents for $624 a week in child support, $5,300 to finish paying her high school tuition, $13,000 for the legal fees that she had racked up trying to sue her parents, and full access to the college fund that her parents had been saving for her. Now, her parents maintained that they would happily care for the needs of their daughter if she returned home and respected their rules. Now, you guys can probably imagine how the judge ruled on this case. As you would expect, it was rightly thrown out. It was laughable. The judge thought the daughter's request was absurd. And actually, the judge's response was great because he said to the girl's lawyer, he said, where do we draw the line? Can 12-year-olds sue their parents for an Xbox? And, and that was the end of it. Eventually, she ended up moving back in with her parents, and I would imagine began following those rules. But the daughter, what she wanted to do was to set the terms of the relationship she had with her parents. She wanted to be the one to define how her and her parents would relate to one another. But she does not have that authority. In the parent-child relationship, there's not a democracy. The authority there is not equally distributed. The parents are the ones that set the terms of the relationship, and the child obeys those terms. And I think in this way, God's covenant relationship is, with Israel is very similar to the parent-child relationship. God sets the terms, and Israel honors those terms. In the first 19 chapters of Exodus, it shows Israel being delivered from Egypt. They leave Egypt, they're gathered at Mount Sinai. And then chapters 20 to 23, God reveals his law to them. For the Ten Commandments, God speaks directly to the people of Israel. Imagine that, you're sitting at the base of a mountain and God's voice comes forth from a cloud at the top of the mountain to tell you his law. And then there's another portion here after the Ten Commandments called the Book of the Covenant. And those were the covenant stipulations. Those are the laws, the commands that Israel must keep if they desired to be God's covenant people. But those were spoken only to Moses. And then after those are spoken to Moses, Moses relays that to the people in Exodus 24, and the covenant is 
confirmed. And that's what we're going to be studying this afternoon. Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. If you recall from last week, Tim took a brief look at this, but I'm going to dive into it a little bit deeper. And that's what I'm going to be doing uh, over the next several months. Tim will continue to preach through 1 Peter. um, But 1 Peter is a big fan of the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament frequently. So I'll be taking some of those Old Testament passages and we'll be looking at those um, kind of from the Old Testament perspective. So if you have your Bibles, please read with me from Exodus 24 and we'll read the first two verses. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. So the Lord commands Moses to come up to Mount Sinai, where God's presence dwelt at the time. It dwelt above the mountain in the form of a cloud. And he tells Moses, bring with you Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's two sons, and then the 70 elders of Israel. But he says that Moses is the only one that's permitted to actually draw near to the presence of God, that can actually come close to God. And what's interesting about these two verses is the way that they foreshadow the tabernacle. The rest of the book of Exodus, I know you guys are familiar with it. Pastor Brian preached through it a number of years ago. So I know you're experts on the tabernacle, but we'll talk about it a little bit. But after chapter 24, almost the entire rest of the book of Exodus focuses entirely on how to construct and operate in the tabernacle. So if you can think back a number of years ago to when you went through Exodus, you'll remember that the tabernacle was a tent. And it was in this tent, that's where God's presence would dwell with the people. But it dwelt in the innermost section of the tent. It was the most removed from the people. That was the holy of holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant resided and God's presence manifested above the Ark of the Covenant in a cloud, much like it did above Mount Sinai. The second section of the tabernacle was the holy place. Not the most holy place, it was the holy place. And only the priests had permission to enter into the holy place. And then around the tabernacle was the courtyard. This was the third section of the tabernacle. Even though it was technically outside the tabernacle, we still consider it the third section. But it's here in this courtyard that God's people could worship, that they could make sacrifices. But only the priests, as I said, could enter into the holy place. They had been set apart by God for that priestly role to facilitate worship in the tabernacle. So they could come a little bit closer to God's presence. But even they could not stand in God's presence. Only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies. And even him, only one day of the year, on the day of atonement, when he would come in to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Here at Mount Sinai... The base of the mountain functions like the courtyard of the tabernacle. All of the people can gather there. They can worship the Lord at the base of the mountain. Then you go up a little bit further where the elders come to, and that's a little bit holier. They're getting a little bit closer to God, but the majority of the people could not make their way up the mountain like that, only those with special permission. And then at the peak of the mountain, it's like the Holy of Holies, just, just like the, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, only Moses could come into the presence of the Lord at the peak of Mount Sinai. So the tabernacle really just functions as a portable Mount Sinai. Now, we'll come back to that a little bit. It sets the scene here. 
And then Moses and the elders are ready to head up the mountain as God instructed. But verses 3 to 8, they kind of break away from the narrative that was just set up. The next six verses, they're not in chronological order. They probably happened before verses 1 and 2. But the author, Moses, inserts verses 3 to 8 sort of as a parenthesis to give greater context uh, to what we're going to see when Moses and the elders make their way up the mountain. So let's take a look at those verses now. Let's read verses 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses tells the people of Israel all of the rules and all of the words of the Lord. And the words and the rules, they're two separate things. The words are the Ten Commandments. God has already spoken those directly to the people of Israel, but, but Moses reminds them again, and then he reads all of the rules. That's the covenant, the book of the covenant. Those covenant stipulations, those commands that Israel must follow in order to be God's covenant people. <clears throat> so the people, as I said, had, had heard the Ten Commandments, but they had not heard um, the book of the covenant until Moses relays it to them this time. And upon hearing these commands, these stipulations, they respond in one voice and they affirm these stipulations. All the words of the Lord, all the words that he has spoken, we will do. So, so far, th this is a good response, right? Now, if you know Israel's history, they don't continue on this pattern, but so far, so good. God says, look, I have chosen you to be my people. Here's how you must act in order to be my people. And the people say, yes, that's good, God, we will do that. You see the proper submission and obedience to God that they should show. At this point, Israel understands their role in their relationship. They are not on equal footing with God here. Israel doesn't get to call the shots. They don't get to set the terms of the relationship. They get to submit to God's terms. This is unlike the girl from the story that I just shared. Israel, again, understands their relationship here. The daughter wanted all of the benefits of being her parents' daughter, but she didn't actually want to act like their daughter. She wanted to act like the parents. She wanted to call the shots to set the terms of the relationship. And anybody who reads that story recognizes how foolish that is. And just as a child cannot set the terms of their relationship with their parents, God's people do not set the terms of their relationship with God. This is God's covenant that he is making with Israel. So God is the one that defines the relationship. He sets the terms of the covenant. And Israel's role is to live according to those stipulations that God has set in place. And so if you're taking notes, the first point today would be that God defines the covenant relationship. God defines the covenant relationship. So God's people, they can enjoy the benefits of the covenant by submitting to the covenant commands, but they are not the ones that get to decide how they relate to God, how they live before a holy God. 
And again, if you know the story of Israel, you know that they try on many occasions to redefine the relationship to their own liking. And in scripture, when we see God's people try to redefine how they relate to God, it does not go well for them. One of my favorite examples of this is found in the book of Numbers. Uh, you, you don't gotta turn there, I'll summarize it, but in Numbers 16, there's a group of men, about 250 men, and we call them the sons of Korah, and they rebel against Moses. They decide they're not content with the role that God has given to them in the tabernacle. They were called to work in the tabernacle. That was a good role. A lot of people didn't have that, that high, that special of a role, but they believe that Moses was selfishly keeping the people away from God. When in reality, it was God that determined that only Moses could draw near to his presence. But these sons of Korah, they decided, I have every right to come before God. Why wouldn't I? Why does Moses get more right than me? He's not special. I should be able to go into God's presence. Ignoring what God had already said, they decided, I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to be the parent in this relationship. I'm going to tell God how he'll relate to me. You know what happened to those people? God opened the ground and shot forth fire and swallowed them all and they died in an instant. We do not define the way we relate to God. God sets the terms of our relationship. And that includes how God's people come to know God in the first place, but also how God's people live and act. And that's not just true for Israel. It was true for Israel under the old covenant, but that's true for us today as Christians under the new covenant. We don't get to re redefine the way we relate to God. God's word is God's word. The commands that he has given us are God's and God's alone. We don't get to negotiate the way that God has called us to live. We don't get to say, yes, God, I'm gonna be yours. I'm gonna follow you, but hold up, because I'm gonna do things a little bit differently than you asked. The relationship simply doesn't work like that. Yet so many churches today are trying to do just that trying to negotiate, trying to redefine the commands of God's word. Attempting to redefine God's view or what God has commanded on human sexuality or the roles of men and women, the value of human life. And those are higher level issues, but, but on the day to day, when we disregard the commands of God, when we decide that a little bit of pride is okay, when we decide, yeah, gossip's wrong, but I'm gonna do it a little bit because it's, it's just kind of fun. It's just, it's just fun to talk through those things with people. When we decide that we'll give God most of the glory, but we'll keep a little bit for ourselves, I mean, that's what we're doing. We're redefining the way we relate to God. It doesn't work like that. We don't define what it means to be God's people. That is God's job. When we enter into the new covenant through Jesus Christ, our response must be like the one that we saw initially here from the people of Israel. We will do all that the Lord has said. Then in verse four, we see Moses writes down the covenant stipulations, the book of the covenant. Uh, the reciting of this, reading it to the people, the writing it down, these were standard practices of, of making a covenant like this. But writing it down had the added benefit of preserving it for future generations. The people of Israel would need to teach their children how they would rightly relate to God and how they ought to live before him. So he writes those things down and then he builds an altar. He builds 12 pillars, so those pillars represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and on this altar they sacrifice to the Lord burnt offerings and peace offerings. 
Now, the book of Exodus doesn't tell us the significance of these two kinds of offerings, but later, if you read into the book of Leviticus, you can figure it out there. So the burnt offering was often made for the purpose of atonement or consecration. And with a burnt offering, the entire animal was made to the Lord. No part of it was kept for the worshiper. All of it was burnt on the altar for the Lord. But the blood of these offerings would be used to either atone for sin or they would be used to sprinkle on the vessels and the garments that would be used in the tabernacle so they could be consecrated for holy use. The peace offering was a little bit different. The peace offering, it symbolized the fellowship between God and the worshiper. And now certain parts of that animal would be burnt on the altar for God, but certain parts were also kept for the individual and they would take those parts and they would cook them and eat them as a meal between them and the priest. And this, this communal meal symbolized the fellowship between God and the individual. So Moses has the young men come and take these sacrifices. At this point, there was not an established priestly order, so he just had some young strapping gentlemen come and do it. These are oxen, so they're big, strong animals. You need big, strong men that can do that. So he has these men make the sacrifices, and then he collects half the blood and he throws it against the altar. After throwing it against the altar, he reads the book of the covenant, and then he throws the rest of the blood on the people of Israel. Now, I think the blood here works kind of on two levels. So first, Moses throws the blood against the altar. This represents the atonement of Israel's sins, that God has graciously forgiven his people, that he has graciously allowed an animal sacrifice to take the place of the sinner. And ultimately, he does that because he knows that Jesus will come with the once-for-all sacrifice. But the first level here is the atonement of Israel's sins. The second level is that this signifies God's participation in the covenant. If you remember last week, Tim shared with us that, that in Scripture, it tells us that, uh, or not tells us specifically, but we see that there is no covenant without blood. And so generally, when these types of covenants were made, an animal would be sacrificed, it would be cut in half, they'd be spread out, and the two covenanting parties would walk in between the two halves of that animal. And the point was to show kind of the solemnity, the seriousness of entering into a covenant. And the meaning of that ritual specifically is that if we break this covenant, the same thing that happened to this animal should happen to us. It spoke to the seriousness of making a covenant like this. So the blood on the altar represents God's forgiveness of the people, but also God's participation in this covenant. And then one more time, Moses reads the book of the covenant to all the people of Israel so that they're aware of everything that God requires of them if they wish to be his covenant people. I feel like this is the equivalent of, of reading the terms and conditions when you sign up for something on the internet. Like every time you have to make a new account, you have to click the button that says, I acknowledge I have read the terms and agreements. And nobody has ever actually read the terms and agreements. And nobody knows what's in there. It's a mystery. Google probably owns all of us and there would be no way of knowing. But before you sign up, you gotta click the little button. You check it off and then you're good to go. So what Moses is doing here, he's giving the terms and conditions. Saying one last time, I'm gonna make sure that you are fully aware of what you are entering into. God set the terms, and you know what those terms are now, and you are agreeing to obey these terms. So nobody can say, well, I didn't, I didn't know what I signed up for. They heard the terms and conditions. And then after this final confirmation, 
of the covenant stipulations. Moses throws the blood on the people and he says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And here again, I'd say that the blood works on two levels. One, it consecrates the people of Israel. It sets them apart as God's chosen people. They are set apart from the other nations to be God's representatives on earth, to keep his commands, to live for his glory. And then two, the blood thrown on them is a tangible representation of their involvement in the covenant. They are a participant in this covenant. They are bound by it. And that's why Moses said that it was, uh, it's why he said, behold the blood of the covenant, because they are bound by this on the basis of shed blood. And then at the end, again, Moses points out their responsibility not to stray from any bit of this book of the covenant. They have made this covenant in accordance with all of the words of God. If they do not obey all of it, they are guilty of breaking the entire covenant. But what I think is important for us to see here is God's initiation in the covenant process. God allows him to be forgiven through the animal sacrifice. He allows the atonement of sins. He allows him to be consecrated and set apart as his holy people. God is the instigator in this relationship. So the first thing that we see is that God defines the covenant relationship. And then point number two is that God initiates the covenant relationship. Moses is clear here. This is the covenant that the Lord has made with you. God is the acting party. Israel was not sitting around the base of Mount Sinai when all of a sudden one of the guys walked up to Moses and was like, hey, Moses, you know what would be a, a good idea? We should ask God if he's interested in making a covenant. That just seems like a fun thing for us to do. That didn't happen. This was God's initiative. The covenant relationship is a result of God's grace and God's choosing. I mean, Israel's existence is entirely dependent on God, but, but the same is true of this special covenant relationship they enjoy with him. Israel did not make the covenant with God. They accepted the covenant that God, in his own loving kindness, made with them because he is a merciful and gracious God. And just like point number one, this truth is mirrored in the New Testament as well under the new covenant. You and I do not initiate our relationship with God. We cannot do that. We are incapable of doing that. The Holy Spirit must convict and draw us into relationship and faith in the Lord. And when we do enter the new covenant, it is by that faith. But God is the instigator in that. And this truth gives us all the more reason to praise and worship our God because our salvation, our relationship with him, the fellowship we enjoy with him, all of it is done by God's gracious choosing and initiative. Without God's initiative, where would we be? We would be dead, dead in our sins, totally lost to sin. But God in his love and grace has called us to himself to enter into this new covenant just like he did here with Israel. <clears throat> now we've seen that the covenant has been confirmed. They've agreed to it. The blood has been thrown on them. They've entered into this new covenant. And now we, re we return to the scene in verses 1 and 2, and Moses and the elders are starting to move up the mountain. So let's read the last two verses here, verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. 
and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. So Moses and the rest of the men begin making their way up the mountain, right? The rest of the people, they don't get to come up here. There is an element of holiness even just a little bit further up the mountain. You need permission to go up onto the mountain. So they start making their way up, and as they do, they see the God of Israel. They see God before them. Now, there's some tension in this passage. How is it that these men are now seeing God, that they are in God's presence? Because verses 1 and 2 tell us that only Moses was permitted to draw near to the presence of God. Everyone else had to worship from far off, from far away, and then the rest of the people had to stay at the base of the mountain. But these men get a part of the way up there, and then God appears to them. And if you keep reading the book of Exodus, that tension grows even further, because later in Exodus 33, when Moses asks God to show him his glory, God responds and says, if you were to look upon the face of God, it would kill you. And so God allows Moses to see the back of him, but he cannot look upon his face. Now, there's a common understanding among the Israelites that nobody could see God and live. In Exodus 20, I told you that God spoke from the mountain to the people of Israel to tell them the Ten Commandments. And after he does that, the people tell Moses to ask God not to speak with them anymore. They wanted God to speak to them through Moses instead because they were terrified at the sound of his voice. What they told Moses is, we are fearful that we are going to die just from the power of his voice alone. So if, if one can't see God and live, what is going on here? Why does the text state that they saw God? Well, I would say based on Exodus 33, Moses was able to see a, a glimpse of God, and, and the description that we have here gives us some, some clues that that's going on as well. I think we can be sure that these men did not see God face to face or in the fullness of his glory. But the description here helps us understand that they did at least get a glimpse of God. It says that under his feet was a sapphire pavement or a platform that was as clear as the sky. Now, what is that? We don't know exactly. Um, what we do know is, is in Ezekiel, God's throne is described as a sapphire throne seated on an expanse that's above the sky. In Revelation, John describes a sea, of, a sea of crystal spread out before the throne of God. So my personal opinion is that, that they're looking at the footstool of God's throne. Now, other commentators might disagree, and that's okay. We don't know the, the specifics of what they saw, but it was clear that what they saw truly was a glimpse of God and his glory. They were in the presence of God. Now, the original audience reading the book of Exodus would have assumed that that's a cool experience, but sorry for those guys, because now they all have to die. But the passage states clearly that God did not raise his hand against them. That's one of the clues we have that they really were in the presence of God. It's clarifying that, yes, these men were in God's presence, but they did not die. They truly saw God, a glimpse of God, but still God, and they lived. And in doing this, God is communicating in a powerful way to these leaders that he is the one that has made this covenant with them, that they truly have covenanted with the living God. It's a reminder of who they have covenanted with. 
And if the people feared for their lives at the sound of God's voice from the top of a mountain, imagine what is going through the minds of these men as they see God appear before them and gaze on the footstool of his throne. Well, that's what they did. They beheld God and they ate and drank. And that might seem casual, sitting in the presence of God. I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm kind of hungry. Now I might have a snack. Uh, But that's not precisely what's going on here. This was a covenant meal. That was a, a standard practice when you make these kinds of covenants, that the two covenanting parties would share a meal together. And, and so that's exactly what they're doing. They're sharing a meal together to symbolize the fellowship that now exists between the two parties. And this idea shouldn't be foreign to us. I mean, we love the fellowship over food. Any, any small group you've ever gone to from our church, there was probably food involved. Anytime you have business to do with with a client, with somebody that you work with, you're probably gonna go do it over lunch. When you have your friends over, you have them over for dinner, right? We like to fellowship over our food. Generally speaking, you you don't get food with people you don't like because you don't wanna fellowship with that person. I mean, how many of you have ever called up the person that you dislike most in the world and said, hey, it's been a while, let's grab a bite to eat? Probably none of you. If you did, that would be weird and they probably would say no because you guys don't like each other. But the fact that these men saw God and didn't die, and more than that, they ate with God, or at least ate in his presence, it paints a powerful picture of the kind of fellowship that now existed between God and his people. And this is a unique occasion. As far as I know, the elders were not sitting down every day to have lunch with God, and the people certainly weren't. They were still at the base of the mountain. But again, it demonstrates that God had welcomed his people into covenant fellowship. And that's point number three. God welcomes his people into covenant fellowship. There was peace and friendship between God and his people now. However, that peace and friendship was predicated on obeying the covenant stipulations. That fellowship could be hampered, and it would be hampered, by Israel's lack of faithfulness to the covenant. We're not going to spend time in verses 12 through 18 today, but if we did, you'd see Moses continuing all the way up to the peak of the mountain, and he actually steps in to the cloud of God's glory, steps all the way in, and he spends 40 days and nights in the presence of God. But as that's happening, the people that Moses left, the, the elders and Aaron, he left them there. He told them, stay here until I return, until I come down from the mountain. But they didn't listen. Instead, they returned, made their way back down the mountain, and the people got restless, and they made a golden calf and sat around and worshipped the image of a golden calf. The same men that just enjoyed a meal of fellowship in the presence of the living God in a matter of days will then break the covenant that they just promised to uphold. And God knew that, but still, God makes this covenant. He promises to be faithful to these people. He he offers fellowship to these people even though they would immediately be unfaithful to him. The fact that God offers this sort of fellowship, this sort of covenant with Israel should cause us to marvel at the faithfulness and mercy of God. But Christians, you and I today, we enjoy an even greater fellowship than the people of Israel did. Israel had peace and fellowship with God, but their interactions with God were mediated by Moses and later by the high priest. But through Jesus, under the new covenant, we have unlimited access to God himself. Let's look at what the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. It says this, Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You and I can have confidence to enter into the holy places of God by the blood of Jesus. Under the old covenant, only the high priest could enter God's presence, and that was only one day a year. But through Jesus, we can come before the Lord at any moment, any time we need to step into God's presence and, and commune with him. We can do that. The, the curtain that separated the people from God's presence and the holy of holies has been opened to us. Moses could draw near. The elders could not. They were told to worship from far away. The people had to be even further away at the base of the mountain. But now, through Jesus, the ongoing presence of God is something you and I are privileged with. And we can draw near to God with confidence because Jesus has sprinkled our hearts clean with his blood. So when you come to the Lord in prayer, come in confidence because Jesus, our great high priest, has made the way available. This is a privilege that we enjoy that Israel did not. We have been welcomed into a greater covenant fellowship than Israel had. The Israelites were welcomed into the covenant fellowship through the blood of an animal sacrifice. You and I are welcomed into a, a greater, covenant through the fel greater covenant fellowship through the blood of Jesus. So we've seen three truths here in our text this afternoon, and, and these apply both to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And when you put these three together, you get our big idea from the text. God defines, initiates, and welcomes us into our relationship with him. God defines, initiates, and welcomes us into our relationship with him. God set the terms for his covenant with Israel. He sought out Israel, delivered them from Egypt, gathered them together at Mount Sinai, and then initiated a covenant with them. Then after Israel had accepted and affirmed that covenant, he welcomed them into covenant fellowship. Now today, God has defined, initiated, and welcomed us into the new covenant. Even in the Old Testament, though, God had already been defining this new covenant that would come through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who prophesied that he would make a new, eternal covenant with his people. A covenant that wouldn't be broken, that he would put his spirit into his people, write his commands on their hearts so that they could obey him. He would give them new hearts and cause them to be obedient. God initiated the new covenant through the sending of his son Jesus, whose blood would be the means of establishing the covenant and the means by which we can enter into the covenant. And then he further initiates our relationship by calling us and convicting us through the Holy Spirit. And then finally, God welcomes us into covenant fellowship. He adopts us as his children, gives us full benefit, benefits as his children, places his spirit inside of us and gives us unlimited access to his presence. Like, that's crazy. I mean, what kind of God do we serve that would do all of that for us, a sinful people? What a good, gracious, and merciful God. Now this is amazing, but what do we do with it? How do we respond to
to this? Well, the application I would offer to you today is having entered the new covenant, walk in obedience. Having entered into the new covenant by the blood of Jesus, walk in obedience. This is what God desires from his covenant people. God made the covenant with Israel and they were to be obedient. They said they would be, but they weren't. You are now a member of God's covenant people. Act like it. The Israelites, they broke the covenant almost immediately after affirming it, but our situation is different. God has given us his spirit. He's given us a new heart. Walking in sin is no longer an option for you and I who are in Christ because we have been transformed through the work of the Spirit. And through his work, we are capable of obedience, capable of pleasing our Father. We have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, welcomed into the new covenant, given the Spirit, set apart as holy. And as Tim said last week, our job is to become who we are. We walk in holiness because God is holy and through his spirit, we have been set apart as holy. God has made you holy, so go and be holy. And this idea of being a holy people before a holy God, this is something we'll come back to in 1 Peter. But if you are a participant in the new covenant, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are no longer dead in sin. You can no longer be bound by your sin. You will sin sometimes, but as saints, as members of the new covenant, that sin no longer has a hold on you like it once did. Don't seek to redefine the terms of our relationship with God. Don't look at God and say, no, I'm not gonna live the way that you have called me to live. I'll tell you how your people should live. Humbly submit to the way he has called us to live. And when we do sin, take advantage of the access that we have to God. Come before him in humility and repentance because he is faithful to forgive us. Ask him to help you turn from that sin. Ask him to help you live as holy because he has set us apart for that very reason. And as we close, I'll ask you this. Is there a sin that you are holding on to in your heart? Is there a sin that you need to repent of? Are there ways that you have attempted to redefine the way that God has called us to live? Don't presume like the Israelites so often did that you could redefine the standards that God has set before us. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then God has set you apart as holy. God has already defined the standards by which you must now live. So having entered into the new covenant, be faithful to live according to all of the standards that God has set before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you have welcomed us into the new covenant. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that allows us to be forgiven and to have fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to live according to the calling which you have placed on each of us. As you have called us to be holy, Lord, help us to live lives of holiness that are pleasing to you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.